announcements. One is I forgot to bring a Bible up here. So at some point when I'm talking, someone bring me one. I would say throw it, but my athletic skills are declining rapidly. I'd probably drop it. Um, welcome to Restore if you're new. Um, when you came in, if you grabbed coffee, or uh, there's programs right next to that, we have Kid City News in there. If your kids are in Kid City, you can, they're going to be coming along with us and, and learning. You can figure out what they're talking about down there. There's also a connection card. So I'd love to hear from you if you have prayer requests, questions about Restore, want to know what's going on this fall, please write that on there, or you can do that via our app. We have an app that you can download if you search We Are Restore. You can find our app. You can fill out the connection card via the app. We also, on our app and in the programs, there is a uh, Bible reading plan that we're doing together throughout the year. There are bookmarks in the programs. If you are like me and you like hard copies, books, Bible, bookmarks, and you're into that, or you can do it with the app, and you can read along electronically. The scriptures are up- updated each day. And then finally, in our, on our website or in our, through the app, you can give and support Restore financially, and we just continually ask that you would uh, consider supporting us as we um, continue to do our thing here in Silver Spring. I've got some really exciting announcements. Uh, one, next Sunday, uh, we are launching our second church plant out of our church, which is Front Porch church which is in baltimore andy and janet mcneely are starting that church that is them praying over their new space uh it's kind of i kind of fun that they're meeting in an episcopal church and on sunday afternoons their service begins at 5 p.m so it's kind of fun that uh we're, we we ended up both meeting in episcopal churches on sunday afternoons <clears throat> really pumped for them um if you could be praying for them this week just about their launch and their first gathering um I know Andy and Janet are both excited and equally anxious about that. We're, uh, the, all, it has all the makings of a really great Sunday, so we're confident in that. But if you get a chance, try to create some time this fall to pop in on them and go worship with them one time up in Baltimore and York, York Road. It's about an hour drive from here. Uh, but I know they would love to see some familiar faces in the early stages of launching that church. Uh, We also just agreed over the weekend to host an Ethiopian church that is going to be meeting in the living room space on Sunday mornings, every Sunday. Um, We're really excited to be um, hosting them. It is something, it's the type of thing we've been, you know, dreaming about, um, just expanding our efforts of serving our city and having more people meet in there from different pockets. Um, And so they're going to be starting in October. And then we also have been hosting a Spanish-speaking ministry um, that is specifically geared to reach um, uh, immigrants from El Salvador and Guatemala. And that is burgeoning and and really growing in really amazing and beautiful ways. I had the lunch, or I had lunch with the the leader of that ministry. Her name's Lenise. And their ministry is called City of Refuge. And they've been looking for a space to meet in Silver Spring because... All the immigrants live in Silver Spring, and they can't commute to anywhere else. They have been unable to find a spot because every place they go to wants to charge them. She said the minimum was $700. And then they found us on Yelp. They called us, and they found out our our fee was $200. And she thought it was a mistake at first. And then she thought it was a miracle. And I'm like, I don't, it wasn't either. Maybe it was a miracle, but we're really excited that that you're meeting in our space. And... What's happening there, it is, we're just scratching the surface of involvement and, and how we can partner with them. Um, we're, there's going to be more details to come on that, but we're really excited to just see what God continues to do. He brings all these different people together from different backgrounds, different stories, and just his spirit is moving 
through that. And that's, and it's happening, uh, I know it's happening individually in our lives, but it's also happening with our community as well that we get to host um, that. And um, I'm into hospitality and my, our home church that has supported uh, Restore for the last seven years, they've, they've given more support to us than any other church. They asked me to come speak on hospitality, and that's going to be in October. And I'm like, how am I going to narrow this down to all the stories I've heard from you, all of you and in our church over the last five or six years of, of the, the arts and the beauty and honor of, of, of exhibiting Christian hospitality so I'm really excited to do that. Um, so good stuff coming this fall, both inside and outside to Restore. There is an oft-repeated commandment in Scripture. When we follow this command, it is an act of fulfillment. Everything for that brief moment and that little time and location is as it should be. Some might say the stars of God and humanity are aligned in perfect rhythm with each other, which is Rarely, it rarely happens. What causes this? What is the hope communicated from God, and what is the response of humans? The command is, love your neighbor. It's a familiar command. God repeats it over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Sometimes, I don't know, when I read it and I see Jesus repeating words over and over and over again, I feel like he's shouting into like this gaping void, waiting for humanity, waiting for people to respond and turn their attention to what he's saying. And and physically move into that. What prevents us from doing this, from following the greatest commandment? What happens when we do it? And if we're willing to respond, what does that look like? Jesus actually gives us a picture of what this looks like in the book of Luke. So if you could turn with me to Luke chapter 10. It's on page 724. Actually, it starts on page 725. I'm going to read verses 25 through 37 here. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. So what's interesting is this man knows the correct answer. He's quoting the Old Testament. So Jesus is like, you know the answer. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, poured on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. And there is so much depth 
to that little parable in Scripture, um, looking at the priest and the Levite, two people in Jewish culture who would be expected to help someone in need. Like those are the types of people who would normally help, but they ignored him and they passed. Love your neighbor is the greatest commandment. It, it, it appears in all four Gospels. It's told in different ways in each Gospel. Luke's way that we just read uh, is particularly interesting because it's so action-oriented. It is the only instance in Scripture where Jesus gives an example that is attached to the greatest commandment. So if we want to know what it actually looks like to follow the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, that's what it is. It's, the, it's the, good, the story of the Good Samaritan. When we read this story in context of what is normal in the Roman Empire, it's shocking. We got 2,000 years of history to go back through to figure out why this is such a big deal. I mean, the Samaritan had plenty of reasons not to stop. All right, first century uh, historian Josephus noted that road that Jesus is describing was a famous road for its lurking dangers, especially robbers. Everybody knew it was dangerous. Most people traveling this road traveled in numbers, convoys, and caravans. The Samaritan man would have easily, could have easily thought to himself, there's no way I'm going over to help that guy. Could be a trap. This could be a setup. How many of us have passed someone in need at some point in our life and thought, what am I walking into here? He could have easily thought that because of his surroundings. Or he could have easily thought to himself, this guy was clearly traveling alone, it's his own fault that he got himself into this predicament, which would be a normal Roman culture reaction. Like if you mess up, if you get sick, if you get hurt, it was very normal for, for people to just leave him alone. Like, okay, well, you got yourself into this, you can get yourself out. There's even bigger reasons for him to not help. Samaritans and Jews hated each other for religious reasons and racial reasons. The Samaritan would have um, so I read this story and sometimes you're like, well, how did he know he, it was a Jewish man? Well, Jewish people had very specific dress. They wore cloaks that were called mantles that only they wore. They had little tassels that hung from their cloaks that reminded them of, the, of God's commandments in the Old Testament. He would have known instantly upon sight that is a Jewish man. And would it, normally Samaritans and Jews wouldn't want nothing to do with each other. Um, they hated each other. Some rabbis taught that a Jew was forbidden to help a Gentile woman who was in distress giving birth because they, if they succeeded, all they did was to help one more Gentile come into the world. And Jews thought Samaritans were beneath Gentiles. So that just gives you a feel of the stigma. And then they lived in the Roman Empire. The expectation being that if this man that was hurt on the side of the road is not a family member, he's on his own. Live or die. You figure it out, buddy. There was a um, major and normalized lack of empathy and compassion and concern for anybody who was sick, injured, or dying. Romans would, get, if, if they gave birth to a baby that they didn't like the look or if it was the wrong gender, they would go travel to a different part of the city and abandon the infant to exposure. This was not only legal, it was common. So it just gives you a feel. This man, the Samaritan man, lived in a culture and in a religion and in a race that had every reason to hate the man that was lying, dying on the side of the road. But he broke free of these to help. And it's a symbolic parable. I mean, it, it is not a, an actual story. Jesus is using this. What I love about Jesus is he's verbally violating all of these cultural barriers and expectations and values of his audience. He's shocking them 
with an example of what love your neighbor looks like. Because the commandment is not new. The story is. And it would have been very surprising and shocking to the audience. Uh, The description, uh, why did he use oil and wine? I I, I read a description of this that I like. The wine containing alcohol had an antiseptic effect on the man's wounds. The oil helped to soothe the wounds, easing the pain. To set him on his own animal meant that the Samaritan now had to walk, and he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and it seems two denarii would provide for the man's needs in the end for at least two or three weeks. This is what love your neighbor looks like, like missional style. All right, what missional means is you are just doing your normal thing, and then you notice something, someone in need, and you use the resources that you have to provide help. This man used, had oil, he had alcohol, he had some money, he had a donkey. He used the resources he had to provide help, and it was a very simple act But just living in this normal rhythm and noticing someone in need, using your time and your resources and your compassion, that's the greatest commandment. It is a simple but hard act sometimes. David Guzik says, in regards to loving your neighbor, this doesn't mean running after every need that might present itself. After all, the Samaritan didn't establish a hospital for unfortunate travelers but it does mean a concern for the ones playing before us in both social and spiritual needs. So loving our neighbor communally, missionally, as a church is similar. It doesn't mean that we create programs in our church. It doesn't mean that we start a school or a food pantry or a side nonprofit. It means that we identify the people and the organizations who are already doing that and participate in that love your neighbor movement. Organizations like A Wider Circle, who in Silver Spring are lifting people out of poverty all over DC, or Community Vision, just a block and a half down the road, who are providing basic needs to the homeless community and trying to lift them out of homeless, chronic homelessness. We get to support them with both our time, our energy, our resources, our money. We have so for seven years. That's what missional looks like when it comes to love your neighbor. It is not, it should, it's not extra work. It's just part of your normal rhythm. Like, oh, I can do that and fill in on that, both individually and as a church community. I don't know if you guys are like me, but I, I'm a natural skeptic, um, particularly if there's a lot of people that believe something or are saying something. I, genuinely, I generally uh, question such things. Carrie knows if she wants me to, to get me to do something, she needs to tell me that no one else is doing it. And then I'm interested. Like, ooh. Or she needs to tell me it's the complete opposite of what everybody else is doing. And I'm like, ooh, something rebellious? I'm in. I'm, I like that. So when I read scripture, I have a tendency to read it with some skepticism. I want to know why Jesus said this or did that or you know, what was the importance of the context? I want to know why God placed this commandment in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, because they are very different books. We did a whole series on this back in the spring over the Old Testament and the New Testament. Very different. Why is that commandment in both? Why did Jesus repeat it so many times? Why did each gospel writer feel the need to put it in their story of Jesus? And really, frankly, I I don't know all the reasons. I have two guesses as to why they did. And my first guess is that Jesus 
worked through the writers of the Bible and, and, and spoke and, and Jesus spoke these words and the, and the writers of the Gospels put them in there so often because I think that we have a subconscious resistance to the greatest commandment. I think we have emotions and instincts and habits that we formed that inhibit our ability to obey. So in regards to our habits, we all have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives, to think of different parts, different parts of our day and segment them. We have habits and instincts that subconsciously blind us from opportunity to love our neighbor. And we need to continually remember that God can work through us to love others every second of the day. And then in regards to our emotions, frankly, I think fear gets in the way a lot of extending compassion or love and generosity to someone. The Samaritan had a, a lot of reasons to cite fear as a reason not to help. He could have thought of a lot of common sense, admirable reasons. He ignored them. But we do this. We, we let fear get in the way. And fear in our culture is a raging river right now. It is out of control. And I sense a lot of Christians who are just flat out fearful to love their neighbors. And when, I, when we, it's clear, I think now that neighbors means anybody that crosses your path. It's not like your physical, like, oh, I live at 709 and they live at 707. It is like anybody, it's, it's, a bit, it's a broader than that. But we're just flat out fearful to love our neighbors in the name of Christ. What if they find out I'm a Christian? What if I'm outed? In this day and age, in the, in the political and culture, cultural climate, like Brett Howery's not in here. Dang it, he outed me on the golf course two weeks ago. And I was like, you better not tell him I'm a pastor. Because this, and this is not a healthy, this is a fearful instinct I had. We're golfing with these two guys. One of them is F-bombing this and GD that. And I'm like, I, I, it doesn't bother me. I'm like, it's fine, we're playing golf. You know, he's having a frustrating time. I'm having a great time. And Brett's like, do you think this guy realizes that you're a pastor? I'm like, no. And I like it this way. But like the ninth hole, this guy's like, so what do you guys do? And I just pretended like I didn't hear him. And I walked up to the tee box. And Brett's like, oh, I'm a scientist. And they were talking for a while. And then Brett's like, he's a pastor. I'm like, what? I wasn't going to say anything. And then there was a conversation changed a bit. It was interesting. But I noted my fearful instinct. Um, and, and there's history behind that because there's baggage with that word, frankly. I mean, people have been... Just look at just what's happened with the Catholic Church recently. People have been abused by people who are in church leadership verbally, sexually, um, dismissively. People have been abused or mistreated by Christians. And there's a lot, there's a, you hear that word right now. And I have fear. How is someone going to react to this? Like if I'm on a plane next to someone, I've, I've gotten extreme reactions. Either someone immediately stops talking to me or I get their entire life story over the next two hours. And not just like a normal, it's all like the highs and the lows. And there's always tears involved. Um, and I don't mind that. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to listen and be engage, but you just never know what to expect when you love someone, right? You never know how it's going to be received and, and, and what they're going to look like. And I think fear really uh, can get in the way of this. And I really feel like fear and the greatest commandment are tied together with a string because the greatest commandment is the greatest commandment. I mean, essentially, when we follow it, everything falls into place for that moment. Do you know what commandment is repeated more often in the Bible than any other commandment? Over 70 times, do not be afraid. I think they're tied. So that would be a guess as to why 
Jesus mentions it so many times, and the gospel writers mentioned it. Cannot be afraid. Are you willing to be hated in order to love? Do you have someone that hates you? You ever been on the receiving end of that? Um, someone who I really respect, who I think is on the receiving end of it in a really unfair way, is Colin Kaepernick, the former NFL quarterback who played for the 49ers a, few, a couple years ago. <clears throat> he started sitting and then kneeling during the national anthem to bring attention to oppression of people of color in our country. Two years ago when this started, he said, I'm not going to stand up to show pride in a flag for a country that oppresses black people and people of color. I'm not looking for approval. I have to stand up for people that are oppressed. If they take football away, my endorsements from me, I know that I stood up for what is right. It was and continues to be an act of love. No matter how much people try to reframe it and retell the story. And he is hated because of it. I mean hated. It's unbelievable to me. Your willingness to put yourself in a position of vulnerability open to judgment and antagonism and even hatred, your openness to that is in direct relation to your level and ability to love your neighbor. The more willing you are to be antagonized and judged and hated, the better you will be at loving your neighbor and having compassion. And I, Colin Kaepernick's a great example of that. I love him. I think, I think it's fantastic what he's doing. My second guess as to why the greatest commandment is sprinkled throughout the, the Bible so often is that it is a cure-all commandment. When we follow it, it does us good. All right, it's like drinking water. Anytime you go to the doctor and you're sick, what do they always tell you? A bunch of stuff, and then they say, make sure you drink a lot of water. All right, they, they always, because water's good. It's never bad for you. It's just keep it coming. Keep drinking lots of water. It's, our body needs it. Same thing with the, the greatest commandment. If you're sick, if you're hard-hearted, if you're sinful, if you're stuck in a rut, if you're just overwhelmed with cynicism, loving your neighbor will always help. It is a cure-all commandment. It releases toxins from your heart. That's what I think. That's a guess. But I think that's one reason you put it in there. You guys ever seen Pulp Fiction? All right, it's been a while since I've referenced Quentin Tarantino. If you haven't, um, there's a scene in the movie where Uma Thurman gets a hold of John Travolta's coat and she finds some drugs in it. She thinks it's cocaine. It's heroin. He's in the bathroom. So she snorts it and immediately ODs. He drives all over town to his friend's house to help. Gets this needle full of adrenaline and stabs it directly into her heart and brings her back to life instantaneously, the adrenaline entering her, entering her heart. That's what love your neighbor does to your heart. All right? <laughs> Do you like that? I referenced it two weeks ago? Oh. Felt like it'd been a while. <laughs> Just came to me this week. I was like, it's like that time and they stabbed Uma Thurman in the heart with the. Anyway, that's what love your neighbor can do to your heart. All right, it's just, it, it revives it. All right, it releases the toxins that might be building up. It's the adrenaline that gets it pumping again. So loving your neighbor, in my opinion, can actually flush the bad out of your heart. So loving your neighbor will replace the hardness of cynicism, of selfishness, with the softness of love. And the more you do it, the more soft, 
the heart gets. So we're going to spend the next few weeks considering the implications of this commandment. Uh, Loving our neighbors individually, communally. What does that look like for our church? And we are going to have some physical actions as a community. And again, we're not launching any programs. That is not how we roll. We are going to simply just look around, continue to listen to our city, people in need around us, in our path, and we are going to engage and we are going to respond. So be praying about this. And like the Samaritan man, be ready to act. Let's pray.